Welcome to the On-Premise IT Podcast, the only show that dares to be both on-topic or on-premise, and sometimes on-location or on-premises. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT experts to discuss a single idea or premise. On today's episode, we're diving into cloud workload repatriation. And the premise is cloud workload repatriation is a real problem. But before we get into that, let's meet who's on the panel today. Hi, I'm Joey D'Antoni, Principal Consultant at Dimitri Associates Consulting. I write a column at Redmond Mag, and you can find me on Twitter at jdanton. And Eric Wright, I'm the Chief Content Officer at GTM Delta. We give emotion to technical content. And I'm easy to find everywhere. I'm at Disco Posse on all of social media and all over the place. And I'm Jason Benedicic. I'm an independent consultant and analyst in the UK. Can be found under the handle of uh, the data center Brit. Uh, it's kind of my moniker. And I help customers and uh, clients across the world with cloud and workload modernization. And I'm Stephen Foskett, uh, publisher of Gestalt IT and organizer of Tech Field Day, including Cloud Field Day, which is happening this week. And all three of my guests are joining me. So all of us have been involved in enterprise tech for a good long time. Uh, we've long enough that we've become, I say, philosophical about how things go, right? I mean, essentially things go, they, they, they oscillate between centralized and distributed, centralized and distributed. And the cloud, I suppose, is, I don't know, maybe not the ultimate distribution, I guess that would be edge, but, but, but pretty distributed. And now things are swinging a little bit back to centralized. Are we ready for that? I mean, what kind of problem are we talking about here? I'm going to throw this to Eric first, uh, since you suggested this premise. Uh, what kind of problems are we facing here? I think the biggest problem that we face as technologists is the fact that it looks like we didn't know what we were doing. I think we've talked a long time of this idea of let's put everything in the cloud. And then we learned about cloud and we put it there and then it cost more than expected, or we didn't understand the architecture. So we had both technical and business problems. So we said, okay, let's bring it all back. And then we had to justify as we made this cut point of like, well, is the cloud really cheaper? I always attribute this quote to Randy Bias, even though it's not, but I'm still going to attribute it to Randy Bias. The cloud is, is cheaper as long as you're willing to pay more. And so we ended up with this weird spot where what's the right workload that belongs in the cloud, both as a performance profile and cost profile. And so then we were making these weird decisions. We didn't know how much it cost to run it on premises. And so now we were stuck looking like we didn't know what we were doing about our own backyard. And now I'd say a larger group of folks have predominantly said the cloud is obviously a great place to run workloads. Most folks are running at least one cloud, at least, you know, production workloads, if not a significant amount of production workloads there. However, we're then now still revisiting, is it actually, you know, cost-wise the right thing to do? And that's because the technology is kind of caught up. So there's a lot of reasons why we've had many periods where we talked about the boomerang effect. We would put in the cloud and go, oopsie doodle, didn't work. We bring it back. And then we as technologists get asked, like, how did you not know what the outcome was going to be? And that's uh, that predictability is where we're stuck. That's the human factor that we've been probably trying to get software to help us with a long time. I think um, there's an interesting number of factors in this. So when it came to 
the clouds first being built and they were built out of, you know, some existing projects, AWS, you know, additional scale for their own business that they were building. Microsoft, a lot of that came out of um, building the, the infrastructure around Xbox Live and they they built them for specific purposes. And it came to a point where, oh, we can sell these services. And they had all of the expertise in building those services and running those services and building those kinds of applications. And early adopters that wanted to take on those kinds, it's like some modern workloads and, the, you know, we've got a lot of modern databases. We've got a lot of, um, well, we've got microservices, we've got containers, all of those things that came along with it. People that wanted to adopt them couldn't get the skill set. They couldn't get the people in-house to run those or to, to move there. So moving to the cloud to that extent was really, really a, a big draw. People were really pulled into that. And on-premises data centers hadn't changed a lot. The operating model hadn't changed a lot. The hardware hadn't changed a lot. You were getting a really good deal. But then all of a sudden, things started to catch up. Um, hardware made a huge change in the last sort of decade or so. You know, instead of having four core machines, you, you've, you've got 32 core, you know, 64 core, or, you know, and even more, and huge amounts of memory. You've got much smaller footprint. I can fit a workload that used to be in a rack in a two or four U, um, as well as the skill set has distributed. So to get people to run and operate modern data centers that act like a cloud is a lot easier now than it was when we first started having this discussion. To add on to what Jason said, I kind of see this in two ways with some of my customers. Onto what Jason was saying, there are a lot of tools and stuff that help us build better cloud solutions in an on-premises environment. And I typically see those adopted by organizations that have been investing heavily in, in, in those sorts of technologies, hiring engineering staff, uh, and those companies tend to be more technology focused. Uh, they're technology heavy organizations. Their executives also tend to write a lot of articles about how much money they saved and how they improved their services by moving out of the cloud. And other companies that haven't made those same investments like to do the same uh go, oh, hey, we're spending too much in the cloud. And what you don't realize is that, hey, when we're paying for the cloud, we're paying for a lot of excess capacity so that if a piece of hardware fails, we don't really notice it. Uh, and I, I was working with a customer a couple months ago where I logged into their vCenter and everything was extremely over-provisioned. And if they lost a single host, they were going to be in deep trouble, much less if they had any kind of a disaster event. And I think that's where I, I see the real concern. I think... For larger organizations that are technology focused and have good engineering staff, sure, you can do what you need to do on-prem or in a colo. Uh, but a lot of smaller uh, organizations have much higher uptime and availability in a cloud than they would ever have on-prem. And that's something that's hard to underestimate. And that's real business. I think one of the things you brought up, Joey, is really important is that the people that write about how much money they saved and we're kind of in a land of punditry, right? Like I'm, I'm a cloud pundit. I'm a whatever pundit, right? We, we love to write about the compelling story and both sides in the story is never as compelling as a, we just dumped AWS and saved $14 million a year. Great headline or whatever the numbers are. Uh, 37 signals sort of a famously wrote a really great blog about why they chose to move their hey email architecture out of aws because for them it was static and organically growing there was no way it was going to be scalable other than upwards so that particular workload super lined up with let's build our own data center and that economics worked out but even there 
that didn't talk about the fact that they still have, you know, all these other applications, all this other cloud stuff. We get stuck in this sort of zero sum game of you're either all in cloud or you're, you know, you know, hybrid cloud is the most obvious model, but it's not exciting to say, yeah, I run a, I run a hybrid cloud. It's just super fun to be able to say we're all in on whatever's next. And I'll always say, find me a cloud-first organization, and I'll find you three giant VMware data centers that are hanging off the back of it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that polarization, that all-in or all-out, or you know, it's it actually something that not just about cloud recently. Um, we're seeing this in about different architecture types and different decisions on how people are, you know, with applications. So there was a more recent discussion around um, Lambda and uh, one of the services for Prime, I think it was for Amazon Prime, um, and then moving back to a, a monolith. And I'm not surprised. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not, not surprised that they used the right technology to grow and, and they've re-evaluated that decision later down the line and said, actually, we can do it a different way. But because we, live, we kind of live in a world where things are to the extremes or to the polar opposites, that nuance of making decisions and being able to change and reevaluate is kind of lost in a lot of the discussion. Um, we we used to a lot more evaluate our applications, evaluate our workloads, and would pick the best technologies for for them at the time. Whereas we've kind of aired a little bit more towards what's the in trend, what's the 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 kind of the sexy technologies, or, or what's what's you know what are the Joneses doing? Um, and I think that it's kind of hurting and I think it's hurting not just the, the industry but the technologists that are coming into the scene because they haven't had a lot of the experience of doing it the the kind of more sensible way of how we used to how we used to look at architecting applications how we used to look at defining what we would build in a data center I think there's a lot that we can probably still teach to to everybody about the nuances of, of choosing the right tools for the right job that Amazon article was was quite interesting, and it was it was top of mind for me. And I'm glad you brought it up, Jason. I think one of the things that cloud does enable, uh, and it's it's more just some of the design paradigms, like separating data and storage, or separating compute and storage, I should say, um, has facilitated is it's easier to make an application switch like that. Like they didn't have petabytes of data buried in a VM. So it was possible to, to move, move the application architecture relatively easy and build a better architecture. And I think that's definitely something that it's possible on-prem as well, but it's, it's a little bit more easily facilitated with some of the tools we see in the cloud. Yeah, and I think that to that point on tools and, and to your point too on sort of why are we doing this? What's the benefit? Why are we evaluating this? Uh, you know, you, I think people need to think about what is the cloud really good for? What is the cloud really good at? And maybe we use it for those things, right? You know, I mean, maybe we maybe we don't uh, just decide, oh, this is too expensive, so I'm going to abandon it. You know, maybe we maybe we say, wait a second, wait a second. The cloud is really flexible. It gives me burst capacity. Um, you know, it, it, it you know you can programmatically uh, define workloads and deploy workloads there. Uh, all of these things are actually incredibly valuable. So maybe we should leverage the cloud for those things. And then to Jason's point, and, and I think to what, what, what all three of you are saying, maybe we do use on-prem for some workloads. It, it really reminds me of the DR use case. So um, years ago, when I was uh, in the trenches as an IT guy doing IT stuff, 
um, it, it, it occurred to me, and I, I, this seemed like a radical idea to me, maybe it's not to people these days, but it occurred to me that the, the problem with DR was that it never worked. And the reason it never worked was because you never actually used it. It was always sort of a theoretical thing, like theoretically we'll have DR. But then we built a system at one of the companies that I was at that wasn't just DR like passively sitting there waiting to run. It was actually part of the environment. And we made sure that we were running on it, at least some things on it all the time. But then if we needed it, we could go over to it because we knew we could go over to it and we knew it would work because we literally were using it all the time. That same concept to me seems like the ideal way to implement, I don't know what, what you want to call it, like a hybrid cloud or whatever you're going to call it, where, yeah, some things are repatriated, but yeah, some things are in the cloud and the cloud is just another part of what we're doing and we can go to it when we need and it'll actually work because it's waiting there and because it's doing things that cloud is good at. I'm going to hit the, uh, this is the one that I'm probably going to get fired for quoting. It said like the, the cloud is broken and it's your fault. That's it. Like that's what, what it comes down to, right? It's like if the model doesn't work, we have made a human decision that has led us towards a path. Now, some stuff we find out the hard way, but then one would ask, isn't there another, like you said, there's tools, there's capabilities, there's other software. There's so much stuff like Jason talked about in advances in you know, uh, around self-service provisioning and, and automated provisioning. There's lots of stuff. And looking at, you know, Joey, we talked at the start about sort of, is it the year of cloud repatriation, the year of EDI? Is it the year of whatever? We keep revisiting these things because we should revisit the question continuously, but we should use tools to help us revisit the question. And we are idiots and we don't believe the tools because we think we are smarter than the tools and we sort of get stuck in the how we've done it much more than the what is the appropriate thing to do now and i'm an older fella so i tend to revisit my decisions a lot more now because i've had a lot of them and i've lived through them a lot longer <laughs> old man yells at cloud clearly uh, I, I i think there's there's a lot to, to take in here. And, and it, it really depends on your organization and, and your skill level. And, and that's something I can't kind of preach enough because as a consultant, I get to see all sorts of organizations. Some are really good at cloud. Some are really bad at cloud. Some are really good at on-prem. Some are really terrible at everything. Um, and that's why they hire us. But uh, I, I just feel like in the, the, the 37 signals uh, solution, Greatly, like you mentioned, oversimplifies the, the topic. It's, it's super difficult. I think the kind of the place I like to advise clients to look, and, and this kind of ties back into the cost model, is to understand what are your most expensive cloud workloads and would they be better off uh, running in an on-premises environment? Uh, I do a lot of work with databases. Databases tend to have big monolithic servers and sometimes multiple of them if they're in highly available. Uh, those things are really expensive in the cloud. The margins are really high from the cloud providers, so you can get pretty good discounts if you're reserving those, if you know you're going to have those workloads for a long time. Storage, on the other hand, isn't as the margins are much lower. When you try to get a reservation on storage, you can see that uh, the discounts are much smaller. However, storage performance is another challenge, and that's, that's honestly probably the biggest challenge we've run into uh, with very high-end customers going into the cloud. It's just the storage bandwidth and, and IOPS either aren't there, or if they are there, 
they cost too much. And, and that's what leads us to see customers uh, repatriating those workloads. One question on that one, Joey, do you find it's a question of not having access to the analytics that could give you insight into how it would perform? Or is it just that we do have it, but we get unpredictable results that the, the YMMV problem, right? Your mileage may vary. So you put it out there and it's like, oh yeah, the app did behave a little differently than expected. It tends to just be a, a, a sheer capacity problem. I, I think the metrics are really good, uh, especially the types of workloads that I'm talking about are running in VMs. So you can capture everything from the OS level plus the metrics you have in the cloud. Uh, it's just, there is simply not enough bandwidth in IOPS. And if there is, it costs, you know, way more than you'd pay, pick your favorite storage vendor. Yeah, I mean, I've been in some of those kind of discussions over the last few years as well. And I find it, it's a bit of a mixture. Like you've got some customers that just don't understand their existing applications or their metrics or their requirements um, well enough, and they need to do a much better job up front. But that's hard to sell. It's it's hard. It's a hard sell to someone to explain. Like you need to spend some real time, like doing some some app integrations using. You know, there's there's tools out there now that you can put into your code to help get the metrics. And trying to convince someone that you need to spend money to make to make a saving later on is sometimes very hard. Um, and they also want the change now. They don't want the change in six months to a year. Um, so you get those sorts of things. But also, I, I don't think enough people take an honest look at what they really need. Some people have very low technology requirements and you could probably just get away with a couple of servers in the corner and it, it would never really cause you any issue. And especially if you didn't, you know, don't rely on it hundred percent. Um, I, for some businesses, it really, really does make sense to start in the cloud, the, the, the flexibility, the, the speed, the lack of requiring, you know, really skilled staff to get started. Um, makes sense. And I wouldn't recommend that people change that, that mantra, but as you grow, as things change, just have a constant improvement mindset, constantly evaluate and look at what you're doing and try and make the best decisions for where you are at the time. And, and don't, don't berate yourself too much for the decisions you made previously, because they were probably right at the time as well. Um, but just keep moving forward. Well, to that point, I think one of the interesting things about a lot of companies these days is that especially smaller or newer companies are kind of all SaaS. In other words, they, they don't have any applications. I mean, my company, Gestalt IT, we have no applications that aren't SaaS. Essentially, we have no data center. We have no servers. We have no infrastructure. Everything is, is as a service run by something somebody else. And I think that that's the right decision for a lot of small companies, even companies with more complex requirements than, than us. And for those companies, frankly, they're not part of this conversation. If they wanted to repatriate, unless they're, I don't know, a mega genius or really strange, I can't imagine them wanting to um, repatriate SaaS applications, right? Um, but what we're really here talking about, I think, are, are those more traditional legacy apps. And then and there, either you have to refactor them and rewrite them to be cloud native, or you just run them on VMs in the cloud. And I guess that can be repatriated to some extent. Or, or am I completely off base here? No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think the SaaS model for a lot of organizations makes a lot of sense, unless you really, really want to host your own email server. Uh, but yeah, there are a few approaches we see where organizations do lift and shifts in those. I'd say like typically it's a it's a little bit of a 
there are like kind of three layers of, of or flavors of how you can do that. Uh, the easy way, like if the CEO comes by and says you need to be in the cloud next week, you can pay VMware to run on pick your flavor of cloud and just move your VMware VMs there, and that's easy. It's also really expensive because you're paying like four times what you would normally pay. Uh, but even just migrating a, a, a normal VM to the cloud, even if you're taking advantage of a tool like Zerto or Azure Site Recovery to do that, uh, you have to get the networks and the storage right because that tends to be pretty different in the cloud. Uh, so there is some degree of re-architecture. And the way we see that happening with the customers we work with that do that is they'll typically kind of lift and shift those VMs, do the storage and network things. But then over time, they'll start using more cloud native features just kind of organically. And once they get to that point, that's when it becomes tougher to move. But uh, sometimes you can just move those those big monolithic workloads back to an on-premises environment, uh, you know, while maintaining a, a hybrid a hybrid cloud, which is very common uh, amongst most organizations. I think the thing that we have as we look at the move towards that's the thing that makes it difficult being born in the cloud or launching a new service or ideating towards the optimal uh, target lets you just make the decision in advance and SaaS is almost likely the right one and because you're already in you don't really spend as much time evaluating well could I have built this on my own and 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 run it you're just like this was fast it was easy I got there I'm not even going to revisit the decision. It's actually kind of this the idea of the region beta paradox of like, you will live through the pain, like uh, a nominal amount of pain continuously with, you know, a longer threshold before you would take an action than if you would just suddenly experience stinging pain. So you get this massive cloud bill and it's like, eh, we need to re we need to throw engineers at it. You'd spend the weekend re-engineering it so that you can run it on IaaS or run it on whatever. And we will do that. So we have this unfortunately high pain tolerance. And I think that's why we get stuck in this problem of if I move it, then I have to refactor it. If I want to refactor, then I got to refactor the microservices. Then I just need to think about how do I do data? And you suddenly are in this like defining this nominal growing incremental list of pain thresholds that you don't want to surpass and you won't take it. But meanwhile, P to V got us applications off of servers to virtual machines. It was a terrible idea, right? And it was the greatest thing we ever did. Because as soon as it was virtualized, you're like, oh boy, this thing doesn't run as well as I thought. Let me just do a brand new install, create a template, and then I'm gonna rebuild the application. And you were like, oh, I'm already kind of living there. And I think that's the problem we bump into is that we, we say, don't move the single app because you have to rebuild it, like move it. Put it in containers. I don't care. I don't care if it's a giant Java virtual machine with 38 gigs of RAM. Stick it in Docker. Put it on ECS. God bless you. Go for it. <laughs> so one of the things that occurs to me is that there are a lot of companies that see repatriation as a market opportunity. Uh, of course, a lot of those companies also see migrating to the cloud as a market opportunity <laughs> and uh, running in the cloud as a market opportunity and running locally. Anyway, uh, it's it's another market opportunity. And so a lot of them are developing software that would make some of this stuff possible, whether it's infrastructure, meaning I need my own S3. I need my own easy to run, you know, Kubernetes uh, environment. I need my own um, infrastructure as code. I need my own whatever it is. There's companies like that that are making that kind of software that you can run yourself. Uh, there are also companies that are trying, I think, to make it easier to integrate both on an 
on-prem and cloud. What do you think of these software solutions? Are they going to eliminate this sort of uh, the thing that we've been talking about a lot, which is basically you're not Google, you don't have the staff, you don't have the expertise, you just can't do this. Is it possible that you may be Google using some of these software products? I'll, I'll kind of open the floor and I think, yes. I have seen, I've been doing Kubernetes and containers for a while now, and I've seen how well this has evolved um, and how before you, in the early days, you needed so much to just, just to get things running. But now it's, you've got companies out there and, and software platforms that kind of not just look at the, I need Kubernetes, but it's like, oh, I need a service mesh. I need a security solution. I need networking. I need, and they're providing recommendations on all of the different components you need to build a platform, or even they're bundling it all together and giving you a, oh, this just works as a platform and we'll, we'll worry about all the rest of it. So it takes away a lot of that pain point and operating what I would call a modern data center is far easier with a lot of the software offerings we have now than it was when this journey started. And operating in a cloud-like fashion is almost open to everybody. I say almost because there are some exceptions, but it is getting to that point of it's kind of commodity to be able to run like a cloud. And that's only a good thing. I, I do think one major difference there that I see between the cloud providers and the, I'll call them cloud emulators, uh, is that the emulator's software doesn't tend to move at the pace of the cloud. Uh, I think because of the, the level of engineering that Google, Amazon, and Microsoft have, and just how much customer feedback they get, you see a lot more things happen more quickly on those platforms uh, than you see happen on the, the cloud-like platforms. Uh, and that's just, I think, a fact of life that if you're adopting one of those platforms, you're going to have to deal with it. You might not be able to get new stuff quite as quickly. All right, now's the fun part. Now's the fight. I love it. Too true, but also too wrong, right? List we and I don't mean you specifically, Joey, but we just like the all or none or everyone or nobody statements that get said all the time by the pundits. I, you know who you are. We have these problems where we say things like you want Giphy, right? Uh, Alex Polvey, who was at, at uh, Rackspace, uh, went on to start CoreOS, which was around this concept of, you know, Google infrastructure for everybody else, G-I-F-E-E. -E. And in the end, we were like, yeah, actually, everybody else doesn't need it. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, for most people, being faster than they were yesterday, it's like personal productivity. Being better than yesterday is good today, right? And we end up with this thing of like, you need your workloads to be 30% faster or something, something percent better, you know, now with 100% more syrup, whatever the thing is going to be that you're going to add to it to make it supposedly better. But the truth is that we have to think of the buyback principle is the money or the effort you're spending on that thing going to generate an ROI. And again, this is a bit of a problem because we have way too much human sort of sunk cost fallacy we attach to things. But at the same time, if I got a little client server app that runs on a small VM, fire it into a container, stick it into a, uh, an ephemeral, you know, instance that runs, it's got an immutable, you know, source. Great. You know, if it never changes, just leave it there. But at the same time, you're like, why not just leave it running in a VM sitting in DigitalOcean, whatever, like it doesn't, doesn't need to all be 
running on Fargate and I'm not, I shouldn't pick on AWS just because I was working on AWS all morning. So that's, but we don't necessarily need the thing, but it's so easy to get tempted to the like, Ooh, you know, bigger, better, faster, more syndrome, which we as humans also get uh, stuck with. Yeah. I, I really want to piggyback on that in that not everyone's a hyperscaler. Not everyone's the next Facebook. Not everyone's an Instagram or a, you know, a Twitter or any of those things. And, uh, do I need iteration every couple of weeks on my products? Do I need new features every month? For a lot of people, probably not. No, I, I, I'm okay with a twice a year release cycle or a twice a year update cycle or something else. As long as I can get the the other benefits and the things that we've talked about, like the, the infrastructure as code pieces, the, the self-service, the, the billing models, and the, the, the one thing that kind of I think has really come out a lot is the the metrics and and the observability changes from old data centers to new if, if i can still get those basic functionalities i think that's enough for a lot of businesses and they don't need something to change all the time i feel like the the hybrid solutions from the cloud providers have been failures like azure stack uh, amazon adpost uh, i forget what google calls theirs i read an article yesterday about how they were going to make theirs better uh, even if you were offline, which I don't fully understand how that would work. How do we, how do we build those? Uh, how do we get to the solution where we're kind of in a cloud-like world, but not using those sorts of solutions? And, and that's kind of an open question I'll pose to everyone. It actually was perfect, uh, perfect layup to kind of what I was going to say is looking at what we've got coming up with the, the field day presentations this week is really fantastic because we've got folks that are solving cloud scale problems, but at data center scale costs and they're merging the old and the new. So I think of like where RackN had, it was, everybody thought, oh, it's gonna be great for Kubernetes. Well, it's also great for traditional IaaS cloud. And it's also great for VMware. In fact, they did a ton of great stuff with VMware. We've got, you know, folks like Zerto, who again, it's do you back up you know, do you protect in the cloud, to the cloud, from the cloud to on-prem? There's so many options. You know, if we look at Morpheus data, same thing. It's like, what's a place you can go to do the thing that you actually want to do? And then hopefully let software make the right choice, you know, and then you get into where Jetstream, Haiku, Couchbase, and the others that are going to be there. There's Each of them has this fantastic kind of hybrid story. And I think we're farther along, like you said, Joey, of like, you know, how do we do this? And they're going to say like, hey, we've got a model that fits you if you're on-prem, if you got, a, I got a model that fits you if you're hybrid, and I got a model if you're all in on cloud. You know, it's uh, the software companies are are there to innovate for you. And it doesn't need to be cloud scale. It doesn't need to be SpaceX scale. It doesn't need to be, you know, Jupiter scale. It just needs to be a little more scale than I can deal with. Yeah, I think the thing that I like the most about the companies that we're seeing right now is that they're very realistic. And I think that that's, I don't know, an, a side effect of capitalism. Uh, if you're not realistic enough, then you tend not to be in business very long. Uh, they're very realistic about what the, um, what the applications really are, what the needs really are. And each of them is trying to find a need. So you mentioned, you know, a couple of these companies are basically focused on leveraging the cloud for DR, for example, or for ransomware recovery or for, you know, basically business continuity. 
that's an awesome solution. That's what the cloud is good at. You know, you, you basically get it set up and then if you need it, you can have all you need, all you could eat. Um, you don't run into that, that limitation that, that we heard uh, brought up earlier. Similarly, I think, um, you know, some of the other ones, uh, one of the things that I love, for example, about what Haiku is doing is they're actually being realistic about the fact that in a, a SaaS organization has stuff everywhere that they can't repatriate, but they do need to understand, organize and protect. And so rather than saying, get all that, you know, shut all that stuff down, you know, take the credit cards away from your, your employees, they're saying like, okay, how about we get a handle on this in a realistic way that gives you enterprise class, you know, coverage on that. I love those, I love these kind of solutions that are practical instead of, you know, hey, what if we were Google? That's awesome. Yeah. And I, to go back to the, the the original point that Joey was kind of starting with, it's like, how do we get there? And I think we're making really good inroads, right? So the way that software is packaged and delivered and, 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 and taken either you know, containerization kind of did a bit of that journey for us, the first part, and we, we're, we're kind of working on, you know, how, what that means next. But if we have consistent methods of delivering software and consistent methods of controlling infrastructure, location becomes irrelevant. And that's how we build the 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 ideal hybrid model if we've got the tools to do data mobility and to put our applications in the right places and to you know create the infrastructure the same wherever it goes that's how we do it and i think that's we're making great inroads over the last few years and a lot of these companies will have something to tell us this week about how that inroad is going even further i think you bring up the great point jason of it becomes the and sort of call back to this idea that the cloud is broken and it's your fault, right? So we as humans have the ability to make decisions that are much tighter to the business operation and the business outcome. And it becomes a matter of like, is not, you know, not can it exist? It, should it exist, right? Can it be built in the cloud? Yes. Should it be built in the cloud? Maybe. Should it be on-prem? So we have to make those decisions. And like you mentioned, Stephen, right? We Let's just put it all in SaaS. Like, fantastic. Oh, hey, I need to grab that email from like a year and a half ago. Like, wait a minute. we Who's backing this stuff up? And so we have to change our operational pattern to match. But it's our responsibility to architects towards it with the right solution, with the context of the point in time, it's the greatest time to be in IT every day, in my my opinion, and I'm I'm excited by what we're going to be seeing with the presentations. Yeah, and and I think that it, it really is a great time to be in this space because I think, like I said, we're getting real, we're getting realistic solutions, we're getting practical solutions that actually do stuff. Um, whether it's I need to run a database in the cloud, or I need high availability, or I need DR, or I need data protection, or I need to worry about ransomware or I need to deploy servers, uh, whatever it is, we're seeing solutions that address those things. And, um, and I think that it's, it really is an exciting time. Even if some of it does seem a little nuts and bolts, it's actually, it actually has a big impact. So thank you guys so much uh, for joining us today on the On-Premise IT Podcast. And of course, also thank you for joining us at Cloud Field Day. Uh, we're returning to Boston for the first time since the pandemic, uh, my hometown. I'm glad to be there. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun to see the companies in person and remote. Um, of course, it's a, it's a, a hybrid event. So where some people are going to be joining us from remote. Some people are going to be joining us in person. Um, and, and anyone who wants to listen in, just head over to the Tech Field Day website and you'll see the schedule. Uh, you can also find the live streaming video on LinkedIn and recordings, of course, on YouTube. 
Uh, before we go, uh, let me give you all a chance to let us know where can we continue the conversation? Where can we find you? Where are you active these days on the socials? Yeah, so I'm, I'm continued to be available on Twitter uh, at J.A. Benedicic. I, I blog occasionally at the datacenterbrit.co.uk um, and, and actually just find me on LinkedIn because I, I kind of find that's the best place to talk and engage and it's a great place for conversation. I'm with you, Jason. I, I, I'm now officially my dad. I listen to talk radio and I use LinkedIn as my primary social media. I'm, I'm that I'm that old. So uh, yeah, Eric Wright, gtmdelta.com for all things that I do daytime. And for all things I do the rest of the time, go to twitter.com slash disco posse. Oh, and I have a podcast. But uh, anyways, uh, you all are fantastic. So thank you for letting me uh, jump on the call today. You can find me at joeydantoni.com. I'm still on Twitter in spite of its horribleness at jdanton. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I post stuff there. I didn't just mainly articles that I write. Uh, and I also write a column at redmondmag.com on all things cloud and SQL server. Funny enough. Um, so I am also begrudgingly on Twitter still because that's still where the sum of the conversation is. I actually love the community on Mastodon. I'm on Mastodon. There's a tech field day Mastodon server. Um, I encourage people to give it a shot. It's a different community. It's not just a replacement for Twitter. And we were actually just talking about that the other day. I am of the opinion that Twitter is going to come back um, from its spiral and uh, and hopefully level off a little bit. And, and we'll see if that can happen, if somebody can take their hands off of it. But that's my editorial opinion. Um, moving on, uh, moving on. You can also find me, of course, on the LinkedIn's. Uh, I would love to to catch you there. Like I said, Field Day is uh, live streaming there. And I'm getting so, so much great uh, uh, engagement there. I, it's, a, it's a great platform now. Um, you can also find me uh, on the uh, Utilizing Tech podcast every Monday and the Gestalt IT Rundown every Wednesday, where we talk about the IT news of the week. If you enjoyed this discussion, please do subscribe to the On-Premise IT podcast. Uh, also, maybe give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast application. You can also find us on video at YouTube slash Gestalt IT video. And of course, you can find uh, episodes in with increasingly more informative and interesting articles that go along with them at gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise. For show notes and more, uh, go to the gestaltit.com slash podcast site. And thanks for listening. Uh, we will catch you next Tuesday. <laughs>